students these days are distracted. That was true before the pandemic, with message notifications and the lure of all manner of digital platforms that could be checked at any time. And in this time of COVID-19 and widespread remote instruction, the distractions have multiplied, as students might be home with their families while they sit in a Zoom classroom, trying to quiet a loud sibling or a barking dog, even as they're following along with the instructor. So what are educators to do? Welcome to the EdSearch Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter here at EdSearch. That question about holding attention is the topic of a new book out this month by James Lang. It's called Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. Despite that title, it's a surprisingly optimistic take on this topic, and it goes out of its way not to blame students or urge some sort of blanket ban of technology. But Lang admits that holding students' attention is now harder than it's been in the past. And he offers some practical suggestions on how to respond. For the podcast this week, I chatted with Lang through a Zoom call, of course. He was in his home office in Massachusetts. You may have run into Lang's writings about teaching before. He has been writing for the Chronicle of Higher Education for more than 20 years, these days as a monthly teaching columnist. And he has written for popular publications, including the Boston Globe and Time Magazine. He's also in the classroom, well, a virtual one these days, as a professor of English at Assumption University, where he's also the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence. We talked about his tips for holding attention during online classes and how he got into writing about teaching in the first place. I started out asking him about his research process for the book, which included two years of hanging out in the back of classrooms, observing when students drifted off. Well, so I, I mean, there were kind of two strains of research I conducted for the book. One of them was the very traditional strain of like reading research on attention and neuroscience and cognitive psychology and all that stuff. And I was very interested in what, um, you know, people were saying about like attention and distraction in the brain and whether that's changing as a result of our devices. So that was like kind of like one strand of research. The other came about kind of serendipitously, actually, because while I do direct our teaching center on campus, and that gives me a chance to observe people's classes sometimes, I'm, I'm usually doing that for like a really specific reason to try and help someone with something. And in fact, though, I had also been appointed to our like tenure and promotion committee um, two years ago, and I, I was the chair of it last year, actually. So we had a lot of cases, and for every one of those cases, I had to observe at least one class for all the candidates, and sometimes more than one class. So this meant I was observing dozens of classes over the course of a couple of years. And, you know, while I was sort of generally looking at these classes to kind of see how effective the teacher was in general, um, you know, you can usually get a pretty good sense of that um, within the first 15 or 30 minutes of a class period. And then at some point, my kind of my attention would wander, of course, because I was reading all this stuff about attention and distraction to see what the students were up to. Like, were they tuned in? Um, were they paying attention to what the teacher had to say? Were they off task on their devices? Um, and it was kind of interesting to correlate what I was seeing with what I was reading and to kind of notice what were, this, what were the things that teachers did that seemed to uh, push students away uh, and, and nudge them toward their distractions and the things that drew them in or drew them back in after they had been away for a little while. So um, it was a nice kind of grounding experience um, to be able to, to compare what I was reading in the research to what I was actually seeing in the classrooms. This actually, I, I, this is 
um, reminding me of a long time idea I've had. I've never pulled it off. So tell me if this is a good one. But I wanted to do a multimedia feature for Ed Surge about just putting camera in the back of a big lecture hall in a lot of different lecture halls and just see how the students, what they're doing on their computers or in their phones, like as the teacher's talking and just have this, maybe even black out, blur out the teachers. So you don't even, I'm not trying to pick on professors, right, individually, but just to right. say what, you know, what are the students doing, you know, really? Yeah, it's quite striking to see like what's, I mean, that's the other thing too. I always sat in the back of the room. So I always had a clear view of the student laptops. Um, and, you know, it, that made it very interesting because, like, it was very visible to me. And the especially interesting thing was um, they all knew that there was a stranger in the back of the room. And in most cases, you know, didn't know why, right? Because it's not like I announced my presence. I was trying to be as unobtrusive as possible. But there were many cases in which students would be visibly off task, like two desks in front of me. And they were well aware that there was, like, another adult in the room behind them, you know, sort of observing something. Um, but, but, you know, in the cases in which something, you know, was going on in the class that the students really weren't interested in. My presence didn't seem to, you know, bother them at all. They were perfectly willing to still engage in their distractions. But anyways, I think that's a great idea, but good luck finding volunteers for it. I, it has been one of those things where I've been like, do I know some professors who'd be brave enough? That's why I was thinking of like, you blur them out. You don't, you, you just, yeah, you're you're just do doing this. Like yeah. And that way you can't see the students' faces either because you're behind them. Right. right. I'll keep working on it. but you did it. I mean, you, you got to see the substance of it. And I'm really curious, is there any, um, any generalization that you can make about something, something that seemed to consistently lose the crowd, like anything, maybe especially anything surprising, but like, is there anything that you kind of had as like a thing that came up? Well, lots of things and recommendations that I make in the book stem from what I observed in those classrooms. But I mean, you know, for the quick things that come to mind, I'll give you just two examples. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book is the presence of the instructor and how sort of felt that presence is in the actual space of a classroom. So not in an online teaching, but in a physical classroom. And, um, you know, you can when you watch a lot of classes, what you'll notice is that there is this kind of invisible fence, right, at the front of the room, right where the desks start, that the instructor often will stay behind. And the instructor occupies this little empty space between the, the front of the row of seats and, and, the, and the board. And um, I have to say, you know, it was, it was very evident over the course of multiple observations that students were more willing to go off task when the instructor confined him or herself into that little space. Whereas when instructors were more willing to come out into the seats and to move around and kind of command the whole room, that made it more challenging for students, right? And it also kind of just, you know, awakened them when an instructor was standing right next to them or when an instructor was speaking from the back of the room, right? And like calling on someone from the front and, and just making more use of the physical space of the classroom, being more fully present in the whole space. It actually reminded me early in my career an award-winning teacher was doing like an interview um, on our campus when I was directing, uh, I was assistant director of a teaching center at Northwestern. And one of the things he said was really interesting to me, which I've done. He said, before each, the, the beginning of the semester, I always go into the classroom when nobody's there and I walk around the whole place. And I just kind of like get a sense for what the room is like. And like a student in this back corner, what are they seeing? And how am I going to make sure that I, I reach that student as opposed to just talking to the students in the first few rows? So like, you know, when, when you talk about like low hanging fruit of attention and distraction, to me, that is like one of the absolute lowest. 
be more present to the whole room um, instead of just staying in your confined little space up front. Of course, if you can, um, you know, we have to be conscious of the fact that not all, not all instructors will be able to do that. Not all rooms provide um, the ability to do that. But for instructors who can, it's an easy, uh, it's an easy thing to do. The other thing I, you know, noticed very clearly was, um, you know, people will say, well, you know, students are going to lose their attention if you lecture at them for a long time. What I actually noticed was that students lose their attention if you do anything for a long time, right? Like, so our attention, and, and, and this, you know, correlates very well with what the research says, um, attention is susceptible to fatigue, right? So over time, if you're doing anything that's cognitively challenging, you're going to start to require more and more effort to pay attention. So, you know, I've taught by discussion for many years in my literature and writing classes, and I know that, you know, you've you can lose students just as easily in a 75-minute discussion as you can in a 75-minute lecture. So we have to be aware of like how long we're doing things and be kind of aware of the rhythm and the, the ebb and flow of attention because there is always going to be an ebb and flow to it. And part of what we have to do as teachers is be aware of that ebb and flow and recognize when do I need to make an intervention here um, to try and sort of get students back into the room with me. That is so interesting. No, I, I appreciate the the concreteness of those of those things, and I'm sure a lot of people that are that are in classrooms will will too. I, I'm curious though. You you start off mentioning the research, so there is this other piece of your research, which is you looked at at what the the science and the brain science and the uh, other learning science teaches tells us about distraction and how that works for people. I am curious, you know what. First off, it seems like there is this assumption people have, like there's a lot of think pieces that we've read, maybe we've even published some at EdSurge about like, you know, students stay, they're very different, they're just more distractible. And that's something you kind of talk about early on, like, what is your take on this? Are we, are we just in a, a time where, you know, things are worse and you've got an even harder job as a professor at the front of the room? So I, I occupy a very middle ground position on this. Um, there's a chapter of the book that goes through the sort of history of people talking about their distractible minds, and that history goes back as long as people have been talking about their minds. You know, I cite Aristotle and Augustine and um, sort of our ancient religious texts, and they all talk about the fact that, um, you know, our minds are easily distracted. And they've been kind of, they've evolved that way, and there are good reasons for that. At the same time, um, we are in uh, an era in which companies are spending massive amounts of dollars in order to create devices that capture our attention. So we have to be aware of the fact that like we're, we're, we're in a period in which there are kind of acute challenges to our attention. Um, so like your device is really good at feeding you novel information continuously. Um, you know, so you can be on, you check your email on your phone. When you've read everything, then you can jump over to Instagram. When you've looked at everything that's new, you can go to Twitter and then you can go back to your email. And by that time, there'll be something new. So like your phone is very good at doing that for you. And even if you're trying to ignore it, it still will, you know, depending on the settings you're using, it'll call out to you, right? Jim, uh, there's an email, right? You know, it buzzes and tells me that. And, you know, yeah, hold out. Mine's vibrating. Hold on. Exactly. And if I look at it, like some, there'll be some little, you know, red things in indicating how many new messages I've got, right? So like, so it's very good at like soliciting my attention. So it's true that we've always been distractible. um, And it's true that we've always kind of complained about that aspect of our minds. But it's also true that our devices have gotten better um, at soliciting our attention. Now, the middle ground between these two positions, as far as I'm concerned, for like teachers or parents or anyone that's concerned about their attention, is... um, 
sort of both, you know, you have to be aware, but you can still be optimistic about it, right? Our brains are here the way they always have been. Um, your phone can present some, and your your laptop or whatever it might be, can present some acute challenges to you. In other words, in the moment, like it can steal away your attention from whatever you're trying to do. Um, but what the research doesn't suggest yet, at least yet, um, and I, you know, uh, one of the things I looked at was a, you know, a survey of a bunch of sort of neuroscience ne- neuroscientists who were asked, like, have our brains fundamentally changed? And they all said, we just don't have evidence for that. Like, and uh, one of my favorite cognitive psychologists, Dan Willingham, points out that, you know, our the, the attention is so fundamental to how our brains are structured. It's difficult to imagine it changing just because, you know, some technology has come along a, a decade or two ago. So, like, the fundamental architecture of our brains is still there. It's evolved over a very long time. Um, so, you know, what I like to say to people is, you know, the brains of your students are still there waiting for you as they always have been. Um they're a little bit, it's a little bit, we have to think a little bit more creatively now, though, about how to cultivate attention when we have um, so many potential distractions available to us. So I think the challenge has gotten a little more complex, um, but it's not, um, it's not an impossible one. So that's the good news. So even though the title of the book is Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It, it's, it, it's yes. not so hopeless. You, you right. can do so, something about it. Absolutely. And the, t- the idea is, um, so the original title of the book, which I, uh, I still like and I use in my presentations, was Teaching Distracted Minds. And the point of that title was everybody's mind is distracted. And not just now, but like it's always been the case, that we've always had these easily distractible minds. So the question that teachers have been asking themselves from the beginning is, how do I teach to a distractible mind? Because the mind of everyone in that room or in that you know online space is distractible. So how do you teach to a distractible mind? And of course, the you know the answer to the question that now is in the subtitle: Why students can't focus? It's because they've always had challenges focusing, right? Like so. So what we want to be aware of is that this is an you know an ancient challenge, and you know everybody who's you know was in a classroom as a student before the you know, the internet and our devices and everything can tell stories about the way their attention drifted. And, you know, they had trouble focusing in class and looking out the window and writing notes and playing with your pencils and all this other stuff. So these things have always been there. And it's a part of a teacher's job, in my view, to think about how do you cultivate and sustain the attention of students? And ultimately, um, you know, I came to believe that this question really can fold in a lot of the other challenges um, and a lot of the, um, the thinking that we do about teaching can be folded into this question. Um, one of the first things I read about attention when I first started doing the research was um, a philosopher who pointed out that, you know, teaching could be considered the art of directing attention, right? So, like, I've got my whole course and all my discipline and there's all this stuff, like I teach literature, right, you know, 20th century British literature, thousands, hundreds of thousands of things have been written uh, in that, you know, in that time period. It's my job as a teacher to direct the attention of my students to the ones that I believe are most important, that they're going to learn something valuable from, uh, and even within those texts themselves to, again, help them direct their attention to the places that matter. So, you can think about attention as being really important here from that kind of big picture view, right? That's what we're doing. We're, we're, We're directing the attention of our students to the places that will help um, them learn something important to the, the things that will help them create a better world. Um, but then we're also having to cultivate their attention within the actual moment of the classroom experience. Now, we're in a very different and challenging time for teaching um, at every level because of the pandemic, which is just going on, dragging on and on. 
and on and on, on, and, on. and here we are. And, and, and it's, so it seems like no matter how this long this lasts, it's, it's forcing people to adjust to this for at least a while. And do you, what does your, I know you did this research obviously in a different time, which is the pre pandemic, but what do you, um, what do you have as advice from your, for people teaching in this moment where you're online most of the time, or you're, let's talk about online teaching specifically, I guess, because some people are teaching in person with PPE and stuff, but what about online? If you're in an online setting all of a sudden, what are some lessons about how to keep people uh, focused? A few things. So the first thing I would just recommend to people is to think about your own experiences in all the sort of meetings and webinars you're going to, right? And to try and extrapolate a little bit from what you're experiencing and put yourself in the position of your students to see like, what what are the moments when you lose your attention to, um, you know, a meeting or a webinar or something like that? What 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 sends you away and what brings you back? Right. And so, you know, that's a big part of what I was trying to do in the book. And what I hope readers will do is to say, okay, I'm going to look around me and think, like, where do people pay attention? And where do people get distracted? And what can I learn from that for my classroom? So the book, you know, talks about, you know, going to when I went to the symphony with my wife and like thinking about attention in relation to that experience or a play or, you know, um, in meetings, stuff like that. So, that's the first thing I would do is I would say people need to think for themselves, like when you're in your departmental Zoom meetings, right? Like what's, what's keeping you engaged in those meetings and what's sending you away and what can you learn from that for your own experiences? The second thing is um, I do believe that on devices and stuff, you know, our attention spans are probably a little bit more challenged, a little bit more limited. So, you know, there's some good research, um, one study a few years ago that looked at something like 7 million users of four different um, MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses, and looked at like how long those users watched the course videos for, um, depending upon how long the video was. And so, you know, when videos were up to, I think, nine minutes long or so, for the most part, people watched them. Once they got beyond nine minutes, it sort of falls off like a cliff. Like the, the longer the video was, the less that the people watched them. So, you know, I actually took an online class this uh, summer because I wanted to kind of see what my students experienced, and I had never taken an online class before. And one of the things I did notice in that class was when the videos uh, were long, like 45 minutes to an hour, not only was it hard for me to pay attention because, of course, I'm home with my, you know, my family's home with me, and um, there's all the other stuff that's going on when you're home, but also it just was hard for me to find time for them, right? Like in the space of like a, a frequently interrupted day, Whereas if the videos were broken down into shorter bits, like 10, 15 minute increments, first of all, I could, you know, it was easier for me to kind of just sit there and go through the entire video and then do something afterwards. But also it was easier for me to find time, right? Like, you know, it's easier to find a 15 minute window in your day than it is to find an hour window in your day. So, you know, if teachers, it's very simple. Like if teachers have, you know, an hour's worth of video lecturing they want to do, break it up. Um, you know, and make it into smaller chunks that students can then kind of um, find different times throughout the day in order to do. For all of us who are, you know, trying to be productive, I mean, I, there's nothing, you know, I would argue that's sort of revolutionary here, but 
Um, you know, when we want, when we really want to be productive, we have to think about how we're shutting out some of the sort of normal distractions we use. And I, I wasn't very good at doing this before I did this research. I had read this advice before. So, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people who have heard this and are not following it, but I will say that, you know, at this point I'm on, I'm currently on sabbatical actually this semester and and doing some writing. And and when I want to write, I close things out in a way that I didn't used to. I close my email, I close my tabs. It's just my word, you know, and my word document and me looking out the window, right? And like, and that enables me to do a little bit more uh, in-depth thinking to kind of let ideas flow in a way that they didn't before. So, um, you know, so for people in terms of thinking about their own productivity, it's it's worth thinking about doing things like, you know, setting a timer, rewarding yourself with a little social media time after you've done your 30 minutes of work and um, so all that kind of stuff. But there, there's lots of good advice out there about that. It is a tough time, clearly, for for all this stuff. And we, you know, there's another issue you talk about in the book, which you know, does affect people who are still in classrooms, which is banning devices. And that has been, as you even joke in the book, like it's such a, you know, phenomenon that's been being talked about for ever since there's been portable devices. And maybe even before that with calculators, I have no idea, but it's a long going concern. And I'm curious, what is your advice based on all your research and observations around distraction in classes about whether instructors should ban um, devices, or it sounds like a more nuanced thing. How can instructors think about the decision on how much they allow students to use devices during their, their presentations? So my two sort of major points here are, first of all, um, I think if we, the more we sort of try to create a classroom that's a community of learners working together, the more we can invite students to help us with this issue. And that is to say, you know, attention is hard, especially right now not only because of our devices, but because there's this pandemic going on, right? And um, and that's likely to continue for a while that we'll be facing all these challenges. So how can we help support one another in sort of keeping our attention on each other in this room or in this space? And and I think there's an ethical component to that, right? We owe each other our attention. When we're, when we're trying to work together to accomplish something, or when you're speaking to me, um, you know, I, I should try to give you my attention. Um, that's kind of, a, you know, a, a gift that I'm, I'm giving you is to 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 give you my full attention. So, but it's, t- but it's hard. We know it's hard. So I think we, first thing we can do is we can ask the students to help us. Like, what can we do? What can I do in order to support your attention to me and to the content? And what can we all do to support our attention to one another? So that when one of your classmates is speaking, you're giving them full attention. Um, and so that I'm paying attention. I'm, you know, we're making sure that I'm paying attention when you're speaking as well, right? So like, this is kind of a shared project that I think we all have to undertake. And in the book, I recommend some resources that, um, that people can look at in order to help promote that kind of um, community-oriented way uh, of approaching the problem. The second thing that is, though, you know, I'm, again, like I'm a middle ground person here. I'm against technology bans, and I'm against bans of technology bans. Like, I think we have to be more nuanced in the way we approach this issue. And in my view, um, a kind of a context-dependent approach um, is the one that I've landed on for myself and that I try to recommend to other people, which is to say that, you know, it depends on what we're doing. Um, so there may be times in class when, of course, you know, if you're lecturing um, and you're just going to be talking to students and you want them to be able to go back to that material later and and uh, rework it and, uh, you know, use it in a paper or a project or something like that, you know, it should be fine for them to take notes on their laptops. There's no reason t- to me not to do that. But like in a literature class, for example, you know, if I want to stop class 15 minutes early and just say, okay, 
Why do we still care about this poem? How does it still connect to our lives today? Nobody needs their laptops for that. And like, there's a, that's a moment in which I may say, okay, and I do this in class. I'll say, close, everybody close your, your devices. You don't need your notebooks, you don't need your devices, you don't need anything. We are just going to talk to one another for a little bit. And so I think we all should have those options available to us. And those, having those options available to us and thinking through them can help us think a little bit more about what we're doing in the classroom and why. So I ultimately view kind of our reflections on attention and the strategies we use to support attention as having potential um, potential to help us become more effective teachers. Um, so I, I, fa- I very much favor a kind of context-dependent approach as opposed to having a kind of one-size-fits-all approach for, uh, for devices in the classroom. This has been a super interesting conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. I'm, I'm also just always curious to, when I talk to people, you know, you've been at writing columns about teaching for 20 years or more. Um, clearly you've sort of consumed a lot and, and gotten into this, but what got you into teaching in the first place? Like what, what, what is it about teaching that drew you to, to, to kind of this in the first place? So when I um, was getting my graduate degree in English at Northwestern, um, I was actually just sort of looking for work, you know, for like a part-time job. Um, and I, kind of just happened on to this, the Center for Teaching Excellence was advertising um, positions for uh, graduate assistants. Uh, and Ken Bain was directing the teaching center at that time. Uh, he hired me. And in the meantime, I was teaching like one class a quarter, you know, or something like that. Northwestern was on the quarter system. And, um, and I, I, I'd always had like one, and I taught for a few years at that point as a graduate student. And just, you know, I wanted to have like teach great and interesting discussions, like in which we were talking about the meaning of books and everything. And they just never seemed to come to life like I wanted them to. And I didn't, you know, I just kind of struck, continually struggle with that. And then when I got to the teaching center, one of the things Ken did for me, he said, you know, there was a library of stuff. There was actually like a physical library and there were like file cabinets full of articles and stuff that were um, on different topics. And he said, you know, learn, like go learn a little bit about like everything that we have and like all the research on teaching and learning. And I remember one of the things I, I looked at was how to have a great discussion. I was like, wow, there's like research on this, like, and, you know, a lot of good ideas for what you can do. No one had ever spoken to me about that kind of thing before um, in my graduate education. So um, I started trying some of the stuff that they, and I just was, it, I, that just kind of started a lifelong fascination with um, tinkering around with teaching, seeing like what research tells us about what works and what doesn't, and then trying things out in the classroom, seeing how they work, trying to come up with my own creative ideas. Um, and I, I think that's part of it too. You know, I'm as a, um, I love to write, and that's always been a huge part of my kind of professional identity. Um, and I like the, that creative process. And of course, coming up with a great teaching strategy is a very creative activity too. So um, looking at the research, trying to apply it to your particular classroom context and being creative in your thinking about doing so, you know, that to me is a very pleasurable and, and uh, creative activity. And you've found a way to do that for, uh, with a big audience. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being here today. All right. You bet. Thanks for the conversation. This has been the Ed Search Podcast. As regular listeners know, all this semester, we have been following a group of students and professors on six different campuses, getting an intimate look at the ups and downs of college life during the pandemic. We will have the next installment of that series next Tuesday, Election Day. And we'll be talking about the polarized political environment and civil unrest these days, 
are playing a role in college life. Today's episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Thanks, as always, to Tony Wan, at Surge's managing editor. If you like the show, please take a moment to rate or review it. That is the best way to help spread the word. And even though it's going to distract people to do this, we encourage you to put out a social media call saying how much you like it if you do. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Thanks, as always, to Ed Surge's managing editor, Tony Wan. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, and be well.